Welcome to Shoot This Now, the podcast where every week we talk about stories that should be made into movies and TV shows. This week, our special guest is writer, musician, and my friend, Eric Steuer. He is a man who knows a lot about hip-hop music, and he brings us a very interesting story this week about an activist who fought for civil rights and feminism in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but in the 1990s became maybe the most hated woman in hip-hop. It's a story of why she decided to take on gangster rap and made an enemy of the last person you would ever want as an enemy, Death Row Records founder, Suge Knight. I mentioned Eric's a musician, and throughout this episode, including right now, we're listening to music from his EP with Dos Feliz, his group with my other friend, Jason B. True, released on Plug Research Records. It's spelled D-O-S-F-E-E-L-I-Z, so go get it. Also, Google Eric to read his stories, listen to his other podcasts, and everything else. And if you like this, good lord, give us five stars on iTunes. It won't really accomplish anything, but it'll cheer me up someday when I'm feeling low. Sorry about the fire engines you're going to hear at some points during this podcast. We recorded it in California, and we are on fire. And now the story of C. Dolores Tucker with my guest, Eric Steyer. So you're one of my oldest friends and favorite people. I realized I've known you for 23 years. Oh, that's crazy. It's awesome. I mean, not, not 23 years continuously, because we've lived in different places. Mm-hmm. I knew you through that whole period, though. It wasn't, we didn't uh, live closely or see each other all the time. But no, we've been friends for a long time. It's great. It is great. And you know more about hip-hop than anyone I know, I would say with absolutely no question. And I'm not saying that to like put you on the spot or play gotcha. Like, what was the name of Bobcat's second album? But you, you know a lot about hip-hop. And when we talked about you being on the podcast, the first idea was actually for you to talk about the Ghetto Boys. So yeah, I was thinking that I would talk to you and sort of pitch you on the idea of doing a Ghetto Boys movie because there's so many interesting characters in that group and in the sort of surrounding world of the Ghetto Boys. Jay Prince, the guy who started rap a lot, like he's a ridiculous character, like in so many ways. He's just interesting and brilliant and kind of more low profile than some of the more famous um, Svengali's and executives over the years, but he's got some drama around him and, and also a lot of brilliance. But then I was thinking about like, you know, what's actually interesting is the way that in retrospect, I rethought a little bit about C. Dolores Tucker, who, who you know, who knows who you know who she is. I think the first time I heard of her was when I was driving every day to this internship that was like two hours away in the summer of 1996. So I was always listening to the radio and Tupac's How Do You Want It was like the only song on the radio. It was on like every five minutes. And there's that line where he says, uh, Steve Dolores Tucker, he's a motherfucker. Instead of trying to help a bad word, you destroy a brother. And I was like, who is C. Dolores Tucker? And I read up and saw she was an anti-rap activist. So at that point, that's kind of all I knew her for. Yeah, so in the early, you know, mid to early, or early to mid-90s, she emerged in a more public way after having had a long career in both politics and activism, uh, reaching back as far as the early 60s. I mean, she'd marched with Martin Luther King at Selma. She'd been involved heavily with NAACP. She was in politics in uh, Philadelphia. She was actually the Secretary of State there. I mean, just like all this stuff. Pennsylvania, yeah. In, in the early 90s sort of emerged as this, as this very public anti-rap and especially anti-gangster rap crusader. And I just remembered at the time thinking because of the way that you would see her, especially if you were in your you know late teens, early 20s, and you were a hip-hop fan, whatever, it's sort of just like this cartoonish character that was represented very 
kind of old-fashioned values and was trying to censor artists that I thought were really great. Yeah, you know, I just thought she was this total killjoy church lady. And I definitely took the view that hip-hop was political protest and that this woman, whatever her intentions were, was trying to shut down political protest. Even if she was talking about misogynistic lyrics or something like that, we're looking at it now from a 2018 perspective, I do kind of hear what she's saying and feel like there were two sides. Yeah. I think I think that's true for me too. And then I was thinking about what how would I, how would I want to turn that into a story, or how would I maybe pitch that as an idea? And I think like for me, it's less about necessarily reframing her as being correct as much as it is looking at her as a much more nuanced person and actually someone with a very yeah interesting history. But even just taking that block of time, so I don't think that this would be like a biopic, like where you kind of run through her entire life. It's really focused on telling the other side of this story that played out in the the early to mid-90s where characters like Suge Knight were involved and Tupac and the Ghetto Boys too. I mean, they were they were a part of that too. Um, Jimmy Iovine, I mean, like th- th- there was a lot of activity that she was extremely part of that I think that she kind of gets maybe just sort of written off as this footnote when in some ways she had some pretty big effects on what happened with the, uh, the industry at the time. And also, um, I think it's just, just as someone who's, who's, there's a lot more details to her story than, than I remembered when I think about um, that era. I just, like I say, saw, saw her as being like this kind of um, a scold and yeah. not someone who was trying to do something good for her community. Can we run through the Wikipedia entry of some of the uh, hip-hop insults of C. Dolores Tucker? The, 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 the insults that, that came out in rap songs against her? Yeah, some of them were insults and some were more I acknowledge you exist type of things. There's the classic Tupac line I already mentioned, uh, which led to her suing him. In the song Church for Thugs, the game says, I've got more hatred in my soul than Pac had for Dolores Tucker. Jay-Z said, I don't care if you see Dolores Tucker, Bill Riley, you're only riling me up. Little, ref- little Kim references her in what Wikipedia describes as a leftover track. And I don't know what that means. I think it means it didn't make an album. It was it was something that was maybe released just on the internet. Or... Uh, that feels like editorializing by Wikipedia. Citation. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Lil Kim said, uh, "See Dolores T. Screw her. I never knew her." It's a pretty weak rhyme. Pretty bad. Um, KRS One and Channel Lives. Free Mumia is one of the songs that basically says, "Why are you devoting your energy to this when there are other things going on?" It's like when you get pulled over and you're like, why are you stopping me when there's people out committing murders? Which is kind of a classic argument, but also kind of meaningless because you can use it for anything. There's always something worse going on. Right. And then Lil Wayne mentions her in what Wikipedia again calls a leftover song. She's more bulletproof than uh, than, than folks remember. Even though she's dissing her on record guaranteed to make that track disappear from the album. <laughs> I think this is actually sort of respectful. Wayne says can't be banned i'm sorry miss dolores they called her miss she was treated with uh, uh, some respect there the yeah so the thing i'll say there like you know there's there's a few of those artists you mentioned the game jay-z wayne my bad i forgot a pretty big one. Oh please oh eminem yes i remember that one eminem said tell that c dolores tucker slut to suck a dick that's not very nice um at all i'm not laughing because it's funny i'm laughing because it's so ridiculous I think Eminem way overplayed. We'll wait for those firefighters to stop saving people's lives. Jeez. Why don't you go try to shut down some rap? (laughs) 
Why are you fighting that fire when there's a wildfire nearby? <laughs> but yeah, Eminem, not cool. Well, you know, he kind of came after this all happened too, which is also the same for the game and Lil Wayne and Lil Kim, Jay Z, even really like they're 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 disses. So that that's sort of what I was getting at is like they kind of refer back to her even in the Jay Z line. He compares her to Bill O'Reilly. So that's that's this framing of her as if she was just this complete, you know, she had one aspect to her and she was just like trying to trying to stop art, and that was that was all she was about and. I, I can see why that was part of the story that 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 was appealing to rappers to say about her, but like there there really has never been, in my mind, a uh, a really compelling look back at what she was actually trying to do. And there's also just elements of the story that are super interesting. So how do you start the story? How do you introduce C. Dolores Tucker? You said it's not a straight biopic. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think you could sort of flick at some of the stuff that, uh, you know, I mean, you want to let people know that this is someone with some import and has a history and is a person with credibility. I mean, she's, like I say, she was like, she marched with King. She was friends with Rosa Parks. She was friends with Maya Angelou. I mean, she had, she had real, um, real cred as an activist and had a long history doing it uh, and was in politics. And um, this is not the first time that she sort of was on the public scene. Um, she's in her mid 60s by the time this all uh, starts happening. So she's, I think, I think you start telling the story, you know, maybe somehow she becomes familiar with this music and starts hearing the lyrics and is shocked. I mean, like, I think that's not a hard thing to imagine a woman in her 60s is hearing this stuff, a lot of it which has probably been explain to her as being politically important or, you know, it, it's, it's like sort of this, this, it is the, the, serious fire, dude. This episode's too hot. And we're back after a break for the fire. Um, so what you're saying is, this is not, by the way, the really serious fires that are going on. This is some small fire in my neighborhood where we're recording this. Um, clarification. No one, no serious injuries occurred. So if you're looking at this the way you and I were looking at it as white teenagers in Southern California, she's this mean person who's trying to ruin this music that we like. And from her perspective, it's, wait a minute, I spent 60-something years in the start of fighting for civil rights. People get a platform and this is what they do with it. Yeah, I think that's exactly the perspective that she was coming from. I mean, I think she was also, you know, there's an argument to be made that she was using this, I wouldn't say cynically, but like, you know, as a way to increase her public profile. And that was definitely um, a criticism of hers that she was just sort of riding on this thing because she could align with a lot of other famous and influential people and kind of gain some power for herself out of this conversation. But that's true of every player in it. I mean, it's it's no yeah. more true of her than it is of Tupac or Suge Knight or any of the, or, you know, MTV anchors who were, you know, talking about this and playing and opining about it and playing speeches from her and kind of riffing on them. And this is like, or people writing about it in Rolling Stone. It's like, it's sort of people were using this moment and it is a, you know, a moment in, in particular. I mean, this we're talking about like this kind of kicked off in about 92. So just a couple of years after Strand Compton had come out and then not only had that emerged but then like there was this whole system of this kind of music that was being distributed even much more widely than that had because it was through uh, Warner and, and 
it was being taken to even more extreme levels through groups like uh, the Ghetto Boys, and, and, and there was a lot of controversy around all that stuff that had nothing to do with her, but people were really doing a lot of thinking and writing and talking about, like, what does this all mean? This is, like, really heavy, hard stuff, and it's, like, the kind of stuff that just a few years ago you would have might have imagined only existing in collections as something that kind of would have been transferred around as, like, an underground tape, because it was, like, I mean, that's how I became familiar with the NWA in the first place, was, like, someone would give it to you as a dub of a dub of a dub of a dub, because their brother's friend had it or whatever like that. It wasn't just like you could just immediately walk into any store at the mall and get this stuff. And just a few years later, that totally switched when the, these big, big, big companies, these media companies got in, they were distributing it to like literally just any place that you would walk into that would have music, you could get this stuff, which was pretty, pretty tough stuff. So I think like that's, that is sort of what inspired, um, I, I would imagine, I think of as, as being the thing that would have inspired her to kind of like take the public stage on this issue. Yeah, and this is the era when, don't ask me why I was looking today at murder statistics in New York, we all think that the 1970s were like, you know, the Death Wish era was like the worst possible era for crime, but it peaked in 1990. And this is a time when Los Angeles has a really serious gang problem, like a legit serious gang problem. And people are looking for root causes and in some cases blaming this music. Like even in the really safe part of LA where I grew up, I remember people threatening to beat you up if you wore too much red or too much blue or whatever. There were a lot of kids who wanted to seem like they were gang affiliated even if they weren't. Like it was a thing. It was a thing people were conscious of and talked about. And you know, every time a new thing comes up, people think, well, what if this is the end of the world? Like what if this is the music that turns kids into gangsters and we have like a rash of street crime that goes on endlessly? What if rock and roll gets kids, you know, dropping out of school and having sex all the time? What if, um, because of memes and emoticons, kids forget how to write and communicate properly? Which is kind of true, actually. <laughs> I mean, at the time, you have these activists who are saying, you know, what if this rap music actually is going to get people killed? And that seems absolutely ridiculous in retrospect. Like, I don't think that music can cause anyone to commit a crime that they wouldn't otherwise commit. It, it just seems absurd. But they didn't know at the time that it was absurd or that this music would eventually be played on nostalgia stations because there just been never been music like it before. Right, and that's why I would say that like some of her criticisms and definitely some of her tactics, I'm not like standing behind it and saying, well, looking back, I think that she was 100% right. I just think that it's, uh, that first of all, she's got a much more interesting story than people know, and also that she was coming from a perspective that I think people don't know. Again, in that Jay-Z lyric, sort of equating her with Bill O'Reilly, it's sort of ridiculous. I mean, it's completely, um, silly and and to know who she was aligned with at that time which were um, a lot of conservative politicians but also people that were on the left and um, the ACP backed her she but then like you know she also took this to the FBI for them to launch an inquiry she was a part of getting congressional hearings about gangster rap going I mean so there were these toxic tactics that she used which I could definitely see still in retrospect why that people would look back on that and be like, ugh, that was, that was maybe not the right, right way to move this conversation. Um, but, so then, purely removed from that, just some aspects of that story as it played out over time that I think are really interesting. So, you know, she was, like I said, really good and effective at causing attention and creating a conversation about this stuff. And one of the things she did besides taking this to the FBI, launching, helping launch congressional hearings, you know, she bought stock in Time Warner so that she could go to the meetings and she could speak up. And, wow. um, and when she did that at a shareholder meeting, she challenged some of the executives from Time Warner to read lyrics from Death Row releases and they just <laughs> wouldn't do it. 
So there was stuff like that where she was really good at getting attention and to sort of um, you know, cause a spectacle uh, in the same way that, you know, that, that Suge Knight was really good at it too. That be, sort of became her uh, arch enemy in a lot of ways in this story is that they were battling in the media quite a lot over this particular thing that she had done, which was to um, force or to sort of shame to some degree or be part of a campaign to shame uh, Time Warner to cut ties with Interscope. Um, there were some other pieces of that too, actually having to do with the Ghetto Boys release because um, that wasn't through Interscope, it was through Geffen, but it was like one of these other labels that fed into the big media company and they ended up selling their stake in these records and, to, and with Interscope they ended up selling their stake in Interscope altogether because, um, not 100% not because of her, but she was, I think, substantial in, in helping just sort of like bring some protest, bring some attention around the idea that there was these corporations that were um, making money off this music and then not everyone thought it was that that was pr appropriate. Do you think the conservatives who were aligned with her uh, were kind of using her as an African-American woman to, to make criticisms against black artists that they themselves weren't comfortable making or to kind of try to, I don't know, amplify their criticisms and make them look not racist when they may have been based on race? I feel like I don't know well enough. I mean, knowing some of the players that were aligned with her at that time, that would not seem like a impossibility, for sure. But I, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember enough about, I haven't, I haven't found anything in any, any writing or anyone talking uh, about that enough to know whether that's a thing. But, you know, that's, that's sort of always a thing a little bit. I mean, people aligning themselves in ways that are convenient to push their own agenda forward. So, who knows? So when you were re-familiarizing yourself with her, did you come across much about this this meeting that she had with Suge Knight? No. Okay, so again, in sort of a big to-do that was meant to, I think, be a meeting of, you know, people to cause some media attention around this thing. Like It was probably in 95. And I think she brought Dionne Warwick and Melba Moore. So two very famous singers, performers, and people she was friends with. And they had this meeting with him where they pitched him on the idea of basically leaving Death Row and all this music that he put out because he was such an effective marketer and businessman. Come with them and instead do a black-owned uh, record label that would essentially be positive music. And so he took the meeting, I think, because probably he knew that that would gain a lot of publicity for him. And that's one of the things he loved quite a lot. And he's still around, I guess. Not fair to say loved. Well, it's fair. It's fair. Um, not not correct. He still loves publicity. He still loves publicity. Um, also, beating people up. <laughs> we'll take that out. <laughs> takes this meeting sort of unclear exactly what comes out of the meeting in the conversation but he sort of suggests to them I think they walk away from it feeling like okay this went well this this there may be something here he can he can help 
use distribution channels that he's familiar with. He can, you know, this will just this will just be a big story, and so people will be really excited about this because Suge Knight meeting with C. Dolores Tucker and then starting a record label with her that's supported by Dionne Warwick, it's just like a huge thing. Instead, what he does is he walks away from that meeting and claims that she was trying to extort him and <laughs> sues her for extortion, saying that. In the meeting, she had said something to the effect of, look, if you don't stop making the kind of music and distributing the kind of music that you're making, then we're going to really, like, pressure the people that we're working with, these politicians, to put the boot down on you and, like, really make this hard for you. Wow. So he, that's that's his claim out of that conversation. So he sues her for extortion, then goes and hires a private investigator, this really nasty firm in San Francisco, to dig up all the dirt that they possibly can find about her. And there is some. Then he starts releasing the details of that investigation, including there's, if you read about her, there's a lot about her having been accused of being a slumlord in the the 60s and 70s, I think. She'd inherited a lot of buildings in very low-income areas, and uh, they apparently were not well-maintained. Her husband's really big in real estate, in Pennsylvania, and that probably makes it a little easier to hang that on her. There you go. He essentially found through this investigation also that she had sort of exaggerated her educational credentials. She always went by the honorable Dr. C. Dolores Tucker, and uh, those were just... I saw that she had two honorary degrees, one of them from Cal State University in Northridge, so... CISO. You know what? Two more than I have. And so I remember this line very well and I always uh, I just remember thinking well this, that's quite a zing he said yeah, it turns out Dr. Dolores Tucker's about as much of a doctor as Dr. Dre and I remember that being frequently uh, quoted you know, in, that, in that time Yeah, so that meeting that she had set up and I think walked away from thinking was going, had gone well, turned out to sort of, in a lot of ways, be, I think, the nail in the coffin on this story, you know, like on, on this this piece of that story. So there were these, I'd say about three years there where she was a presence and kind of pushing um, this conversation in this direction. And not that she went away entirely after that, but you didn't just didn't really hear much about her after that. It sort of seemed like he, that people were ready, readily accepting of the idea that Suge Knight had just kind of exposed her as being a fraud. That she was, in addition to having misrepresented herself in some ways or having been a slumlord or accused of being a slumlord, that she also was, on top of it all, trying to shut down what was a black-owned record label, like, you know, and... and and do damage to these uh, young black artists, which, of course, is only one side of that story. This also kind of reminds me of Citizen Cone. Oh, that thing's great. Uh, Not that she's in the level of Roy Cone, but just in the sense that whether you're rooting for her or against her, she's compelling either way. I mean, she's just an interesting character. Well, I think there's a lot of stories like that, especially from that era. I mean, the part of it is our age that we were at that time, but as I think the 
you know, I know you had uh, Leon Nafok on the show and talked to him and that you're a fan of the Slow Burn Season 2 podcast. And there's just a lot of stuff from that era that I feel like was represented, especially if you were... If you, if you were aligned with a certain perspective or if you were a certain age or whatever, that you were supposed to just sort of take in this one way. And I, I feel like you can still hold a lot of those same values that you thought you had or you had then, but look at these stories now and understand that there's so much more nuance to them. There's just, it's not, it's not at all as, as, as clear cut as being like this person is a, um, a buffoon or, or, you know, the, 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 the hero here that there's, there's just a lot more to it. So to tell the story, do you kind of do the thing in the Breaking Bad pilot where you start, you know, with her walking into that meeting with Suge Knight, and then you sort of go back and show how she got to this point, going through all the civil rights movement and everything else that she was involved with earlier in her life, um, and then you sort of show this meeting and how disastrous it goes, and the fallout from that? I think a little bit of that. I think I think it's really important to give that context, but I really think that this is the story of about these three years where she sort of emerged on the public stage as a crusader against this stuff, and then you know, had some, I think, really substantial successes in getting people to talk about and think about the culture and what, the, you know, what the music and, 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 and then I, I do think that it's sort of, it, it culminates with this, um, her trying to collaborate with Suge Knight and him being, as always, the consummate villain and fucking it up. <laughs> You see that it's sad. Like no matter, again, no matter if you think that she was right or wrong or 100% right or wrong, like that you see that like, you know, that that she was not, she was not all wrong or not all right. And she, and that for, for, for there to be, to be no more conversation about it as she sort of like fizzled out of the narrative because like of this thing that Suge Knight was able to do with her publicly, I think um, that ends up being sad. Yeah, I think they could have done a lot of good. I, I do believe that music can be a positive and a motivating and, a, and an inspiring force um, for good. And that they could have done good things together. Odd as that sounds. And it's kind of, it's tough for me to, to say that and to reconcile it because I've already said I really don't believe that music is a force of harm. I don't think it encourages people to do wrong. Um, you know, I, I know that may sound inconsistent, but I believe it can only be a positive force. Yeah, she claimed to have seen, you know, firsthand some of the effects of, of the coarsening of the culture because she was a, I think like a, not literally the parent, but I think she took in the children of a lot of her nieces and nephews and sort of people in her family. And she said, I read one thing where there was, she was talking about having watched the direction that different kids that she was caring for had gone and some of the decisions that they had made. And she, for whatever reason really thought that these were decisions that were led in great part by people's self-esteem being lowered by being entrenched in this kind of music or this culture. And so I think, at least in her telling of it, a big part of what inspired her to be a crusader against gangster rap was having seen these people in her life make these decisions and to, for her to personally associate it with the, the, the music and the culture they were steeped in. Thinking about what I said about how I don't think there can be a negative impact from music, I, I think I have a blind spot there because I can see how if you're a young woman and you're constantly um, hearing yourself called, you know, the words in a lot of hip-hop songs from that era especially, I can see how that could be bad for your self-esteem and having, you know, boys repeat it 
or think it's okay to talk that way, I can see how that would hit your self-esteem. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm out of my depth in some, in some ways to talk about this stuff, but it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that for sure. I mean, I think it's not inaccurate to say that the culture in a lot of ways become more coarse, but it's not that gangster rap necessarily led that or that it's responsible for, you know, and then you look at the actual numbers like you were talking about in 1990s. I mean, like the, you know, a lot of the kinds of things that things like gangster rap gets blamed for, if you actually look at the stats, those, those things have actually reduced in numbers over time. So there's there's not a lot of uh, data there that, that, that proves that gangster rap or, or even a coarse culture have degraded our society in the ways that some people would accuse it of having done. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's much more gangster rap in existence now than there was then, and there's way less violence. I mean, crime rates have gone way down. So the spike in crime coincides with the existence of gangster rap, but to some extent you could say they both spring from the same problem, which is neglect. I mean, there's a huge amount of neglect in the early 80s, in the late 70s, in cities. And that contributes to both, you know, a rise in protest music and a rise in gangs. Music emerged as a, a voice of that. I mean, it was like people were, I mean, that, that, that violence, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't a cause and effect relationship. It's like those things go hand in hand because someone is talking about it and they're having an opportunity to have a platform to talk about it. I'm going to get this this a little wrong, but Chuck D made this amazing point about how hip hop was invented. It was coming after a time that, you know, a lot of public funding for music programs in schools was cut out. There weren't musical instruments available. There wasn't the kind of, you know, music class that they used to have. And kids still wanted to make music. And so they went to the park and they invented their own style of music. They created a musical genre. Nice. If this were a movie, who do you think could play her? So I think there's a few options. I think that um, you want to go age-appropriate casting here. I think um, so. I have a director in mind too. So I'll start with that actually because I think that that uh, leads into my first choice to play her. I was totally thinking Lee Daniels for director. Lee Daniels. Okay. Mine is Ava DuVernay. Which I think oh yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah. A few reasons for that. One is that she was actually a rapper before she was a film director. She. Uh, did you know that? No. Yeah. Um, yes, she, her first film actually, which um, I think it's on Netflix now. It wasn't for a long time, but I think more recently it's, it's on there. It's a documentary called This Is The Life. And it's about the Good Life Cafe, which was the health food store in Lamert Park where a thing called Project Load came out of. And she was a part of that scene. She was a rapper. She's actually in one of the groups that was on the original Project Load compilation. What? Yeah. When you talked about how people used to give each other copies of tapes, that's the tape that you gave me. That's a great tape. Yeah. I mean, it was one of my favorite things of the of that era, like the, the mid '90s underground rap. She was a, yeah, she was a part of that. And she so then, um, I think probably around 2008 or so, she released a documentary that sort of looked back at that scene and the stuff that came out of it and the and the all the different kinds of people and, and influence that came out of 
the Good Life Cafe, by extension Project Load, the Freestyle Fellowship, like just that whole world of LA underground rap that that, um, that is, is I think probably had more influence than it is famous, but it is extremely influential. And, and uh, but she was a part of that, so I think she would be interesting because she would come at it probably I imagine as someone who more sympathetic in some ways to see Dolores Tucker's perspective even in the 90s but I bet um, that she probably had some conflicted feelings about it and probably thought like many of us who are around that age and who are really interested in hip-hop especially someone who was making it like her she probably thought that like at least in, in some ways that this is Overreaching, or like this, you know, this is not the right place for this woman to be spending her time. And I want, and I, 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 in thinking about this, I've just wondered if she would look back on it and see that there's a lot more of a nuanced story there to tell, and that this is a, a pretty interesting character. She seems like she'd be a really perfect person to do this because she'd be really fair, but she'd also be invested. She's not just coming in 20 years after the fact and, you know, casting judgment. She was in the heart of this and has a stake in it. Yeah, that's a good point because there's a certain type of criticism of art or culture that you can only make if you have lived it or been a part of it or loved it. And um, so then when it comes to casting, it, maybe it seems lazy, but she has worked with Oprah. Oprah is age appropriate. Oh, amazing. Oprah feels like one of the people that I could imagine being in this part. Others, I think Angela Bassett would kick ass. Alfred Woodard kick ass. And even uh, I was thinking because saw Creed again recently and Felicia Rashad's in it so she's but I really do love the Oprah idea because if that happened this movie would actually get made the only the only problem with it I thought about this too is that like when Oprah does something like that it's it, it's it's sort of hard to separate it from being an endorsement like a full-on endorsement of this person and and so like would she be willing to play her not as a straight-up hero Thinking of like the butler by Lee Daniels, she did play a character who was really nuanced and not always likable. And, you know, I don't think everything she plays has to necessarily be uh, hagiography. Is that the word? Hagiographic? Hagiography. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. I, uh, yeah, I, I, maybe I'm thinking that because people have so many associations with her that they would look at this and be like, okay, Oprah's riding hard for this person. Like, it's like, you know, she's, but, but because it's, she'd be playing a real, uh, person with 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 her own notoriety, etc. I would go see the living hell out of this movie, but do you think enough people would? I think this that 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 era is very very intriguing to people, and that you know, of course, you know, Straight Outta Compton is about a very 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 famous rap group, but I think more than anything, it's like that era that people have a fondness for, not even reliving, but just sort of like looking back at and understanding the actual people. You know, like this, this all happened in an era where you had very few channels where you would get information about these conversations, these personalities. Now, like if this stuff played out, you'd, you'd hear about every aspect of every single, it would just be, it would drive, you know, social media for a year and it would be, you'd know a lot more about it. And, and, and that, was, that was actually the, the most interesting thing about the NWA movie to me is that like, I obviously have read at the time I read it all, I've read it all since. I've read every single thing about that era. And still I never I realized that I never was seeing them as people, you know, in, in, in the way that uh, having that more direct relationship with for better or for worse with, with famous people now gives you you can see them 
And so I do think that there's a market there because that, especially if you throw in the death row piece of it, like I think there's just like this, there's this hunger to look back on that time and to understand it more as a series of actual humans doing things and making decisions. I think that's why there's this um, new project about the Lewinsky scandal. There was the, what's the thing? There's a TV documentary or a Clinton scandal, right? And then there, and the podcast, it's like, those are things that don't, don't just, people don't, I don't think people are looking at because they are like historical documentaries. It's because it's like something that they were alive for and they're able to see it now in this different way. So it be a little bit of a stretch, but I just, I do feel like that that's, that's the way to sell this a little bit is to sort of re re look at this thing that happened when you were a little bit younger and maybe understand a bit more about how it actually played out. I think one of the most human things you can do is try to go back and understand or in real time, try to understand someone you really disagree with, not just to look at the, you know, cartoon version of them or the, the bad version of them, but to see where they're actually coming from. Um, we talked about Leon A. Fox, amazing podcast, slow burn. And one of the things that struck me about that was seeing Linda Tripp in a more three-dimensional way than I'd seen her in the 90s when she was just kind of a, you know, seen as a jerk or a mean person. It's funny that that was your read on Linda Tripp in that episode, because I do think that hearing from her directly, you know, definitely gave you more of a picture of her as an actual person and to know that she's been sort of living on this farm or speaking only German or whatever it is. Like, that's there's, there's details there that are interesting and maybe flesh her out I wouldn't say necessarily in complimentary ways but they just give her more nuance and I did think that that was interesting but I definitely did not walk away from that episode feeling like she didn't do it mostly out of spite that she was trying to do a good thing for definitely not for Monica I didn't I didn't buy that at all I thought that was very disingenuous this may be a different conversation <laughs> I never understood with Linda Tripp all the people even in the 90s who were so offended that she'd broken the sacred bond between co-workers who occasionally go to lunch together, but were not that offended by Bill Clinton cheating on his wife. Yeah. I feel like it wasn't just that she kind of broke news of the sacred relationship. She actually very actively participated in kind of moving it to a place where it was not just like she was like telling people that this thing was happening she was like an active contributor to like you know getting it on tape and she tip Monica without her consent right right that's never a good thing no and and, and, and in those questions like that she's talking to her about like she's she's kind of leading her a little bit to like say certain things I mean I just feel like she's she's pretty actively moving moving that along <laughs> I love that we're talking about this <laughs> I, do, I do legitimately think she thought Monica was being exploited now I I think that might be true. I think that that might be true. I think two things could be true there, though, because I don't think I just don't believe that she thought that she was doing a good thing for her. Because you could believe that, and if I believed that about someone that I was concerned with or that I cared about, I, that would not escalate the situation, right? Which is what she did. I, I I do agree with that. I'm not a big fan of escalators, and I'm a big fan of de-escalators. <laughs> That's the word I was trying to find before when I was talking about what she had done in moving things along and leading things along. I mean, like, she horribly escalated it. And and to say that she did that because, oh, if this was my daughter, that's what I would want to have happen. Are you fucking joking? That is not what you would want your daughter to go through. So if you're listening, please go check out the, <laughs> the Slow Burn podcast by Leon Nafok. It's absolutely great. <laughs> More great 90s stuff. Yeah, the 90s were an interesting time. No doubt about that.
There's just no two ways about that. And we'll go out on that. That was my awesome guest, Eric Steuer. Check out his group, Dos Filas. He also has another group called Not The Ones with the number one. Um, and you can just Google him, uh, Eric Steuer, S-T-E-U-E-R. That's S-T-E-U-E-R. Eric is spelled with the C spelling. Uh, I'll give you a minute to get a pen to write all of this down. Uh, while you're doing that, while you're getting the pen, if you can use your phone and give us five stars on iTunes, that would be great. And finally, we're not going to be here next week. We're going to miss the first week I think we've ever missed because it is so important to give thanks, to have, if you will, a day of Thanksgiving and afterwards a day when you would normally release the podcast when you don't because you're uh, tired. So see you very soon. Check out our archive. Look at some other uh, episodes you might enjoy. And um, yeah, thanks for coming.